0: Join Western Field Ornithologists and Colorado Field Ornithologists for their joint 2023 convention. This will be the biggest birding event this summer and takes place July 19th through the 23rd in picturesque Summer County, Colorado. The convention includes four days of field trips covering habitat from pinyon juniper foothills to alpine tundra. It is a great opportunity to pick up high elevation specialties. Field trip leaders will include the ABA's own Ted Floyd, Nathan Piplow, and the convention's keynote speaker, Jesse Barry from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Other highlights include workshops, science sessions, youth birder field trips, bio blitz, and local, national, and international exhibitors for optics to and environmental nonprofits. For more information and to register, visit www.cobirds.org. That's www.cobirds.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. It is a busy time of year for the birding world, and we've got some things to announce. To that end, I've mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. We will be at the biggest week in American birding starting this week weekend the first weekend in may if you are listening when this episode drops i'll be there starting on monday afternoon come and say hi i will probably be hanging out at the aba booth most afternoons and the next weekend and this is a new thing i'll be in philadelphia for an event that we are taking part in with the drexel university academy of natural sciences it is the cheryl beth silverman memorial lecture series it's called for the love of birds it is an event Friday, May 19th at 6.30 p.m. It will be a panel featuring yours truly, along with recent podcast guest and mindful birding advocate, Holly Merker, and photographer and educator, Anwar Abdulkawi. It is free to the public. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It will be a joyful celebration of birds and birding. And afterwards, we will view the and exhibitions. They have a new bird exhibition. It'll be very cool. So if you're in the Philadelphia area and you're interested in coming out, again, it is free. Again, it is Friday, May 19th. Tickets are limited. I will put a link to the ticket place, the ticket website in the show notes. Come out and see us. It should be a good time. I'm going to explore recording it too for a future podcast episode. No promises on that, but you know, we'll see where it goes. On the show today, I am excited to welcome ABA Lifetime Achievement Award recipient Peter Pyle. He is the author of the famous Pyle Guides, the second edition of which came out earlier this year. We will talk about MOLT, obviously. But that's not all. We'll talk about records committees, Hawaii, and more. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of April, very beginning of May 2023. We've got first this week and we'll go in sort of a taxonomic order in discussing them. First up, it has been a year for inland red-footed boobies. North Carolina recorded what is likely to be the world's farthest inland record of the species earlier this year, followed a few weeks later by one in Burlington County, New Jersey this week, which represents that state's first. This bird was seen after several days of storms from the east and southeast, which tracks for a wayward seabird like red-footed booby. Thankfully, for this individual and North Carolina's record, this red-footed booby is a little bit closer to the sea. Ohio nets yet another state-first goal, this time in Lorain County with the release of a photo of a Heerman's goal on, where else, a parking lot. This is Ohio's third first record since the end of December, all of which have been goals, first common, then glaucus winged, and now Hearman's. Over to Minnesota, where a Swainson's warbler was seen in Hennepin County. That's near Minneapolis. This is an overshooting migrant as the species breeds in the southeast United States. And according to eBird, this is the second most extralimital record for this bird after a 2006 record in Manitoba. There are a number of records from surrounding states, however, almost all of which come from May and likely represent overshooting migrants as well. And next door to Wisconsin, which is having a bit of a southwestern-flavored spring this year, the state's first record of flame-colored tanager was seen in Milwaukee and has stuck around for many excited birders. This is, perhaps a little quietly, one of the more extraordinary records of the year so far, as there are zero records of flame-colored tanager in the ABA area outside of Texas and Arizona, where it has nested frequently with. Western tanagers. There isn't even a record for New Mexico, which is a little bonkers. There are a handful of Records of the similar hepatic tanager around the Great Lakes, but none for flame-colored, obviously. Uh, but it does seem of a piece with recent Wisconsin finds of band-tailed pigeon and painted redstart in the state in the last couple weeks. Pretty remarkable all told. Those are the recent highlights. But for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org/rba. You can also kind of follow along with Rare Bird News and our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and an ABA community. Peter Pyle has probably been one of the most influential American ornithologists of the last few decades. His Identification Guide to North American Birds, informally known as the Pyle Guides, are widely known as the Banding Bible and remain some of the most informative and intimidating bird books on birders' shelves, the much-anticipated second edition of which came out this year. But that's hardly all. He's the chair of the ABA Checklist Committee, was central to the effort to shepherd the birds of the Hawaiian Islands at long last onto the ABA Checklist been associated with the Institute for Bird Populations in Point Reyes, California for many years. And this year, he was the recipient of the ABA's Lifetime Achievement Award for all that and more. Congratulations on the award, Peter. It is great to talk to you.
1: Uh, Likewise. Uh, Thanks for arranging this. I'm always happy to spout. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll give you the
0: opportunity to do so. Um, It's uh, early spring uh, now across the ABA area. What, what does that mean in North, uh, Northern California? What is, what does that got you thinking about in terms of birds?
1: Well, FOS, that's the big word of the, Mm -hmm. uh, time period. Um, here we get, uh, our March arrivals included, uh, Wilson's warbler, warbling vireo, um, usually Western flycatcher. Uh, Alan's hummingbird is FOS in January. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Normally, it's a kind of a, a downtime for birding in Northern California between January and April or March. Um, those are really the only things. The gulls kind of all leave, and yeah, and the, this year especially has been very rainy and very cold.
0: Yeah, so.
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's kind of the doldrums, Rich Stalkup used to get very depressed every March and disappear <laughs> for <laughs> for a month and he couldn't wait for April. And so now we're coming out of it and looking forward to the spring.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I have, I have a theory about birders, especially in northern climes where, where like they tend to get kind of crabby in, in March because everyone's waiting for the birds to come and we're still a couple weeks out and and the winter has been long and hard and we're we're just ready. We're ready for it. Perhaps we feel that more than most.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we're all complaining about a little rain, but, you know, it's nothing like some of the other places in the country where it's, you know, snow until april yeah and right tornadoes and all these other things but um yeah so anyway we're uh, we're getting ready
0: yeah um I, i'd love to talk about uh what i will refer to as the pile guides just because it's shorter um when you first started working on them what problems did you see that you imagined that they would attempt to solve
1: uh mostly um at the very beginning And this goes all the way back to 1981, when I did Mm -hmm. little worksheets for the Point Reyes Bird Observatory's Palomarine Field Station, was just simply trying to get banders to age and sex birds correctly. Uh, Back then, there was an old guide from 1969 done by Merrill Wood, Mm -hmm. which uh, detailed basic plumage differences in some of the easy species like indigo bunning here's a male here's a female here's a young male but there was nothing for western nothing equivalent for western species so uh dave desanti who unfortunately passed away this last year um had me do a little project where i did little worksheets for the birds in california and that got me going on aging and sexing and then PRBO at the point at that point had an interchange program with Sweden where they sent us a, a, a young Swedish intern. His name was Per Andel, who came uh, to PRBO to ban for a few months, and in return, I went over to Sweden and was able to ban for a fall season at the Falsterbu. Uh, mm-hmm. Bird Observatory, which is at the very southern tip of Sweden, that's pretty yeah, famous for yeah. its migration. Famous migratory um, hotspot. Yeah, yeah. And um, there, I met Lars Fensson, uh, who had done the identification guide to European passerines, and you know, he just kept harping on me that we needed something like this for North America, <laughs> and we went out looking for white-tailed sea eagle nests, um, and and found the nests, but not the birds, <laughs> but. <laughs> you know, in the process of that trip, I said, he convinced me, okay, I'll do it. So when I returned to North America, uh, I embarked on an identification guide to North American passerines, which is actually what he had, two passerines, um, and then got that completed by 1987 with co-authors Dave Desani and Steve Howell and Robert Eunuch. And then um, 10 years later, updated it, and then added uh, non-passerines and added subspecies mm-hmm. so that was the 1997 edition and that kind of had its run uh until this past year uh when it badly needed updating um primarily primarily for molten plumage terminology
0: yeah so uh, am i correct in assuming that there was very little of this sort of information out there for north american birds you were sort of figuring this stuff out on on the fly uh, pardon the pun, as it were, uh, for a lot of this information, did you just have to go deep, deep into the into the library of bird scientific papers to find this information and, and collate it into, into the what became the pile guide?
1: Uh, yeah, a mix of all of that. Yeah. Um, there was some good literature, uh, but I did spend an awful lot of time in museum collections, particularly nobody had kind of um, figured out what we call molt limits now, and that's where... Uh, during the preformative molt, uh, you know, in the first months of life, most passerines will molt some, but not all of their wing feathers, and mm-hmm. so the limits between the replaced and the re- retained feathers are called uh, molt limits, and um, those are very important for aging. So, and and in the 1987 edition, we hadn't really gotten onto that yet. Um, so that addition mostly includes obvious stuff like, you know, uh, the indigo bunting or lazuli bunting that I just mentioned. Um, uh, but then, so I went in the early 80s or, or let's see, am I getting that right? Well, anyway, at some point in the history <laughs> there, I went into the museum collections and and really figured out the mold limits. Uh, yeah, it was in the 90s and so published that in North American bird bander and um, molt limits for all of the species and whether they have, could have eccentric molts or not, or have molt primaries or not, or if the molts could be complete or not. These are all the variations we normally see in the preformative molt.
0: It seems like a lot of the discussion about molt in general has to do with sort of, you know, coming up with a terminology that is uh, can be used across across the board. That's I mean, that's still a problem with with molt terminology. There was a big paper that came out last year about, you know, what is the best molt terminology, uh, to use. Has that been a difficult thing to kind of figure out over the years? Like, what direction are you sort of heading towards when you're thinking about how to talk about molt?
1: <laughs> oh boy, do you have like
0: three <laughs> yeah, hours? Might, yeah, maybe. maybe um, not. I realize yeah, I'm no, going down a rabbit uh, hole here.
1: Uh it's been a long process. I think we're. Us in the uh, so called Humphrey Parks camp are mm-hmm. gradually making uh, progress in that regard. Um, the old uh, terminology, post juvenile, post breeding, pre breeding, uh, is fine for the few birds we have in North America, particularly right. and in Europe, particularly passerines, but they just, it just does not work at all um, for birds <laughs> around the world. And so we've been really pushing on um, Humphrey and Parks. And really the, the thing about Humphrey and Parks to understand is that the terminology is based on how the molts got there, how they evolved. Mm-hmm. And they did evolve in certain ways. So pre-alternate molts evolved along various bird linea- lineages at various times. And that's how we name name it, not based on uh, breeding seasons and so forth. And and really, once you understand that concept, and it is a little bit difficult to understand once you've uh, gotten used to the sort of boreal-centric um, viewpoint, uh, it, it, it just, everything falls really nicely in place. Um, one of the projects I'm involved with right now is uh, Updating the appearance sections of the Birds of the World accounts, and mm-hmm. and they have me doing all kinds of stuff. And you know, for instance, in the last last month or so, I've done fiery throated hummingbird, Bull, Woodford yeah. rail, Asian fairy bluebird, silver cap fruit dove, Chinese pendulum pendulum tit. You know, and it's a great project because it has me looking at these malts and plumages and using mm-hmm. them in the Macaulay Library extensively to figure out malts and plumages in these birds, many of which have nobody's even thought about You're it You're right
0: never been described um, yeah.
1: so you know and and i you know everything humphrey parks just is so fluid in describing the molts and plumages of all these species but you know if we attempted to try to say post breeding or pre-breeding for birds mm-hmm. that are in the tropics or the southern hemisphere even <laughs> right. it just gets really it's just really yeah. really untenable so um in that paper we've got a um the Humphrey and Parks came out in 59 and they sort of set up the concept. Then Steve Howell et al. in nineteen in two thousand and three updated it. Uh, very importantly, that molt that we consider the preformative molt is a unique molt to the first mm-hmm. cycle. And um it Humphrey and Parks had previously called it the first pre basic, which really confused everything because that it's not equivalent to the later pre basic right. which are the complete they're not, molts. They're not, yeah, exactly. It's not a complete molt. Yet. Right. And um, so, on that paper you mentioned uh, that came out in Ibis by Yosef Kiat, we're going to. Uh, we've just uh, submitted the original four authors on pilot or on Howell at all two thousand and three. We've we've resubmitted another paper, a rebuttal of sorts, which includes a phylogenetic phylo, uh, tree trying to trace all of the malts through the history of, of oh, that's birds. To cool. so try to mostly to try to get folks to understand the evolutionary concept of describing these malts, But really, I, you know, I think 50, a hundred years from now, it'll be the same. <laughs> yeah, only, only in
0: 50 years. We'll, we'll get it. We'll get there eventually. Yeah. The good thing
1: is kids are, are, are getting it, you know, yeah. um, as usual, <laughs> us old, old folks who, who uh, have different terminologies in our head are still yeah. scrambling around. But um, I think, I think uh, it's coming along pretty well.
0: Did you ever imagine the, that people would use the, the pile guides, you know, beyond banders and researchers? You know, I've, I've, when, I, when I first got them, I found it really useful for, you know, learning about subspecific variation uh, and other sort of aspects of the lives of birds that I have, you know, in my feeder, in my yard. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that you wouldn't necessarily find in a traditional field guide. And I think that's very attractive uh, for that reason. Um, Did you imagine that regular birders would use it as much as they do?
1: Uh, Maybe not in the very beginning. I thought it was like Svensson's Guide. It was um, at that point strictly, pretty strictly for banners and ringers or museum workers. Those are the the groups that used it originally. Um, The digital image (laughs) revolution or explosion or whatever you want to call it has been Incredible, I think. Um, yeah, no know, doubt. The Poly Library is just the most incredible resource anyone could have for studying not only molts and plumages, but just about everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so you know, to be able to use the information in the ID guides and apply it to these crisp digital images has been yes. a real revolution, and and does now make the the guides useful for birders who are interested in looking at their images or any image online and trying to figure this stuff out.
0: Yeah, yeah, I really think that the interest in this sort of I know, sort of arcane birding knowledge is really expanded alongside with the, you know, increase in quality of optics, not only digital photography, but also just binoculars. You know, the binoculars are better now than they were 20 years ago. And people can see this stuff better and you can explore this stuff better. It's been really amazing to see that stuff that that take off.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know and I'm, you know, I I have my guides next to me because I can't remember everything in there, of course. <laughs> and uh you know, when I pull up an image or someone wants me to help age or sex or determine subspecies or even identification of a bird with an image, the you know, it's 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 useful. I really like to stress that you often with identification you need to age and sex the birds first mm-hmm. because that then will let you um understand you know where it is. What's what its plumages look like in relation to those of the a, a contending species, and that often helps with identification.
0: Yeah, and I think sometimes this this idea of molt and and aging and and sexing birds can be a little intimidating for novice birders. But I think we are doing this stuff on a very gross level whenever we see every bird that we see. Like it's not hard. One of the first birds that people identify here here in the east, for instance, northern cardinal. You're immediately aging and sexing the birds every time that you see one. Uh, you're just taking it a little bit further down that road when you're kind of exploring that on more subtle plumages or, or different bird bird groups.
1: Yeah, and it's the logical next step. You know, the identification mm-hmm. literature was pretty um, taught back in the 60s and 70s and 80s when we were still trying to figure out MPIDs and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, everyone seems to have that down so well now that seems like, OK, what can we do next with all of this? So, right. so I agree. Yeah.
0: Um, what are some of the biggest changes between the the first editions and these new second editions, aside from well I guess you you said molt, molt terminology was a big one, but were there any other things that you've learned in between publication of these two editions of the the books
1: uh yeah um the the mult terminology is the number one thing you know in ninety seven that was before how it all came out, mm-hmm. so we used the first pre basic and and that just it's I, I taught a lot of workshops before and after um mm-hmm. that change and the the ability for students to learn molten plumage has just, just leapt by you yeah, know I was a thousand yeah. fold once we made that change because it was just too hard to too confusing to consider those two malts equivalent um so what else i added like 21 species mostly mm-hmm. Some introduced things, including some new families like Moonia and Bulbul and um, Collar Dove and some of these things that, uh, you know, have kind of come come on since 1997. Collard Dove actually was just starting to, yeah, to, yeah, remember to that get was going. Then, thing, and I yeah. kind of debated whether to put it in 97. I said, yeah, nah, nah they'll, hopefully they'll <laughs> go away. <laughs> it didn't <laughs> yeah, happen. No, no luck. Um, yeah. So then in. 08, I did the, the part two, which includes mm-hmm. all the water birds and so on. Um, and so I took a lot of what I'd done in 08 and applied it to 97 to the new 2022 revision, mm-hmm. including um, putting the numbers in tables, uh, putting the measurement data in tables and adding um, Tarsus and exposed Coleman for all the birds and they're now Mm -hmm. in tables so that you can easily compare between species and between subspecies between sexes and so I think that really is going to help people use measurements effectively to to help age and sex birds and then um, let's see added those species. And another big thing I um, I did, I just decided to do was kind of overhaul subspecies recognition. And I kind of think this is going to be an interesting uh, process to go through. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to, I've got a big database that I want to now publish with which subspecies I decide to synonymize and which not. But, you know, basically hmm. I tried to apply this 75% rule to all subspecies, and there were a lot of subspecies that were kind of, I thought, oversplit.
0: What is the seventy-five percent rule? Just seventy-five uh, percent
1: rule that? is that, but if you have two birds of different subspecies, two populations, you can mm-hmm. identify based on phenotypic characters, morphological or plumage. Uh, or measurements 75 um, percent of the birds of one population from 100 percent of the birds of the other population.
0: oh okay yeah it makes sense so that's, that's what i thought that, it was but I, yeah, yeah that's,
1: that's an old rule. rand i think 1947 or something like that mm-hmm. so I originally proposed it um if you really try to apply that rule to subspecies, a lot of them don't make the cut. And yeah. another problem was that. So, I know oh, some
0: species that don't make the cut. <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> Pacific <laughs> slope Cordiller and cordillera uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and Yeah.
1: So what I wanted, another problem was that they, the recognition of subspecies was not standardized at all across mm-hmm. the board. You know? Oh yeah,
0: that's a problem. Yeah.
1: And there was a, Flurry of time, you know, in taxonomy, when all the species were identified, and then what do the taxonomists do? Well, they want to then get heavy into the subspecies. So, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, they would amass, you know, thousands of specimens from all over the country and divide them into breeding location and be able to see these subtle differences, which were real, but. Mm -hmm course, it's more fun to describe a new subspecies than not. So so they went <laughs> ahead and did that. And then, you know, a lot of them just turned out to be kind of weakly defined and, and you yeah. can't really apply them. So what I did is I went through and I kind of put the ax <laughs> to a lot <laughs> of these things and tried to just list subspecies that I felt were not only that you could identify based on that 75% rule, but also eliminating things like clinal variation. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of the subspecies, if you take a bird at the northern end of the range and a population at the southern end of the range, yeah, that 75 might work. But then as you go through um, uh, all the populations in between, whether it be measurements or plumage or even song, um, it's just like an even clinal gradation yeah. between one end and the other, and there's nowhere to really draw a line. Exactly, so yeah. so I, I tried to eliminate those cases as well. And I use data from the MAPS banding program to look at measurements. I did a lot of looking at Macaulay images to try to assess plumage, uh, mm-hmm. how much variation there would be in each population, because that plays into it. And then just how big the differences are. And, you know, you have to really account for plumage wear and molt and all these other things as well. And so going through that process with all the birds, um, you know, I probably eliminated 25, 30% of the previously recognized subspecies. So now I'm doing, going back and doing that again for the birds in part two. And once I finish that analysis, I'll, I'll uh, publish, I'll publish the database.
0: Do you frequently hear from bird banders about how they use the book or if they have questions that, that aren't covered? And did you apply those sorts of questions to the new the new editions?
1: Uh, yeah, that's another big update area. And that's that, I don't know, thousands of users. I li- listed them all in the acknowledgements, but mm-hmm. it's not even a full listing since I lost a lot of my emails when my computer <laughs> crashed a couple of times. Um, and so all that information is 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 really valuable and I mm-hmm. and I do get and I'm always happy to entertain questions from banders and others so now they're coming at me with little things they're finding in the new edition that aren't right you know little mistakes and errata yeah. so I'm I'm I've got an errata that's going and is up online already but I'll be putting up an update here soon
0: move on to your work as a chair of the the aba checklist committee you've been you've been there for several years um but you've undoubtedly served on bird committees throughout your birding career um how have rare bird committees changed in the time since you started doing them and now in the 21st century
1: well i've been on the aba clc for maybe 10 years or so now um not much change there it's a pretty simple process all we're gonna do is Look at potential additions to the ABA Mm -hmm. checklist and vote yay or nay. You know we don't get into the each state record or whether each one's valid or not. Most of them, most of the birds are much more better documented now than they used to be. Of course, with digital imagery and eBird and everything else, so that makes our job a lot easier for a lot of these cases that are that are easy. Like uh, let's see, Oriente warbler we just uh is that right mm-hmm. uh we just uh, uh ictrin? Ictrin, is it the ictrin warbler ictrin, i'm sorry i keep yeah. <laughs> using this uh, orient
0: is probably on its way so. yeah ictrin, ictrin <laughs> warbler
1: we just accepted for instance yeah. um you know that's a pretty open and shut case the, the, <laughs>
0: really the, nice photos the
1: places where committees are i think more valuable come with assessing whether a bird has got to and the ABA area, for instance, naturally or not mm-hmm. in a few cases, you've got identification issues. Um, but, and then also the other area is establishment of, of breeding populations for mm. not exotic or non-native or alien or whatever you want to call them. Um, and so that's, uh, uh, those are two areas where I think the committee still serves a really good purpose. Yeah. I think just, uh, Just, you know, maintaining a standard for for at the state level. I've been on the California committee for like 35 years or something. I'm back Mm -hmm. on it now. At the state level, it's more like uh, maintaining a database for these rare birds, which ones make it and which ones don't. And then, for instance, in California right now, we're really trying to assess Mexican duck is a good example. Oh, really? You know, whether... How many of these birds that get to California can we consider pure, and where to draw the lines, yeah, and no and then what is the status of males? I should add because nobody's identifying the females yet in California. <laughs> that's right. So uh, anyway, that's uh, that's the kind of thing that I think the 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 committee's function. And then we do create great archives at the state level. Mm-hmm. For instance, yeah. a few years ago, I did a paper to, on how to tell NASCA from masked booby and I used the whole archive of the CBRC, the California Bird Records Committee, the all the photographs that have been saved and descriptions and looked at everyone and assessed is it a network? could it be a masked a mask, or should we just leave it as a slash? That would be a a good, you know, example of a use of of record committee efforts to to advance mm-hmm. what we know
0: yeah i I totally agree you know the institutional knowledge is definitely a huge benefit of the records committees and um I'm currently back on my state's records committee for a few years off and it's i and it's amazing the the quality of documentation even in the last ten years that I've been doing it is is absolutely incredible i mean all these all these rare birds that come up to us, all these vagrants and are just so immaculately documented frequently with dozens and dozens of photos. Uh, from birders that go get them all super easily accessible. It does it does make it super easy. It makes you wonder sometimes whether or not what the purpose is of of a rare birds committee, because, you know, obviously the identification of the bird is not in question, but there is a lot of data out there, older data that is so critical to establishing changing status and distribution of these birds that that is not on eBird yet, perhaps. But um it's it's nice to have that available, and I think my my state, North Carolina, has actually done a really nice job keeping that stuff accessible to to the birders here. Um, I use it all the time.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, California is the same. It's a it's a great resource for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: You have a you have a long personal history with Hawaii. Uh, you grew up there. You've worked on bird surveys there and elsewhere in the tropical Pacific. What did it mean to you to be able to add those birds to the ABA checklist? Uh, during the period where you were you were chair of that committee
1: uh yeah did it has it, it, been a long discussion my father mm-hmm. of course was robert l Pyle was um the guy and the bird guy in hawaii for so long <laughs> that was one of his pushes uh and he also helped found the aba back mm-hmm. in 69 or whenever 69, that was yeah and then served for a long time on the ethics and rules or whatever they called it um And so on. So he he started that whole process back in in, say, the 90s sometime. Let's let's think about it. Let's add some exposure to Mm -hmm. Hawaii and so on. And and, um, so, yeah, I was you know, I was a little a little more ambivalent about it, I guess. I worried that birders would come in and tromp around and that whole stuff. But that hasn't happened since we've added it. Um, And I think in general, it has increased the exposure of a lot of these rare species, um, high forest bird species like on Kauai that, you know, need some exposure and attention right now. And um, so overall, I think it was a good thing. And then the process of adding those birds that the aba checklist was kind of fun too you know we i imagine
0: so yeah yes. we
1: had I, I i don't know how many we we added i don't know how many we added 100 or something but um you know there was eight or ten cases mostly involving whether populations were established or not that that we had to debate a little bit and a couple id issues and so on and i've also been serving on the hawaii bird records committee and so that committee has been was instrumental in helping figure out some of this yeah. as
0: well what were some of the more interesting questions that you had to uh to tackle with regard to i mean these are there's these are all the kind of non-native birds that are in hawaii that have sort of replaced the the native populations at low elevations there's, there's just so many of them It it's it's a it can be a real headache to figure out which ones are i don't know by whatever standard that you Ascribe to what is established and what isn't. And there's a lot of birds that straddle that line.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. And the process actually allowed us to eliminate a couple of species from not only the. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, they didn't make the ABA checklist, but also we took them off the Hawaii checklist yeah. as well, like black rumped bill and a blue uh, red cheeked cordon blue mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, I think uh, orange cheek wax waxbill were the three that that we started looking at the data relevant to this question, and uh, they'd all gone kind of extinct, extirpated. They extirpated, were yeah. there for a while, but then you know putzed out the populations. Um, it really, we didn't really have the documentation to know that they'd been established mm-hmm. long enough. So, so things like that were were good, and then we debated. Quite a few species, um, and I think there were like eight species that we were debating whether to add, and only one of them, I think, the the common peafowl is the only one that did make it on. Uh, the others, like uh, red-masked parakeet, uh, we didn't didn't make it, but then now we've put it back on based on populations mm-hmm. in California. So those were kind of some of the interesting things, and then we, you know, had a couple ID issues. I think. Tahiti Petrol was one. This was before the North Carolina bird. But, yeah. um, you know, whether, whether that had good enough documentation for Hawaii, you know, so there were a couple of those as well.
0: Peter Pyle has done so many birdie things in his life and career. It would be impossible to mention them all. That is, in fact, why he received the ABA's Lifetime Achievement Award this year, a well-earned honor. Congrats again. And uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, your service to the ABA and the, the birding world in general.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. And we're in an exciting time with all the digital imagery and stuff coming on. So, so get out there and, and good birding all. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding
0: Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our fantastic magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Beauty of Books, and Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash Special shout-outs this week to David and Cheryl Chernoff of Staunton, Virginia; Amy Irwin of Arlington, Virginia; Christine Nispinski and family of Magnolia, Texas; Elizabeth Salvatera of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania; Kelly Sullins and family of Dahlonega, Georgia; and Karen Wilinski and family of Charlotte, North Carolina. All of whom recently joined the ABA. Note of the podcast as the reason for doing so. Thank you so much. It really means a lot that you continue to support what we do. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA, executive producer of the podcast, is Nikki Belmonte, whose fascinating book about the defensive tactics of New World Vultures is called The Bile Guide. Technical production is by John Lowry, whose two-part work on the life histories of brewers, sparrows, and blackbirds is known, in Milwaukee at least, as the old style guide. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who was already referring to her field guide to the birds of Indonesia as an Isle Guide. You can find us online at ABA.org on social media most everywhere is American Birding Association. But on Twitter, we are at ABA. If all of those completely terrible quasi-puns don't land with you, I understand. You have to have had a formative experience with birds to get it. And otherwise they're they're just they're not just basic, but pre-basic. Fortunately, there's no alternative. Questions, comments, can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. Till next week.